This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is September 6th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. I'm Joel Meyer, and I was the operations manager at WRHU from 2000 to 2004. And uh, if you could explain for the listener, what was the title? What were the responsibilities of the operations manager at the time? There were three full-time administrators at the station at that time. It was, you know, Bruce Avery and Ed Ingalls and Michelle Lisi was the operations manager uh, before me. And the operations manager, you know, did what the name suggests, was more responsible for day-to-day type operations. And, uh, you know, Bruce's general manager was more responsible for um, the big picture. So, I mean, I did everything from, you know, being in all the various meetings that um, the station leadership uh, was involved in, to teaching in the training class, to um, ordering supplies and making sure we had copy paper. I did the classical music programming. I produced the classical music programming and managed that staff. Um, It was just a kitchen sink type job. And for me, it was my first full-time job in radio uh, and first full-time job anywhere for that matter. And uh, it was a it was a really good introduction and a really good first job. Okay. Um, before we get into your entrance in radio and, and your career, uh, since you mentioned the classics from Hofstra, mm-hmm. do you remember uh, some of the other programming that was available then? And were you on air at all, or were you just doing behind the scenes? Uh, I did both. I you know I produced the show and then eventually tricked a couple of students into being the student producers of the show, which took the uh, load off me. Um, nice. But we did um, a, you know about four out of the five days of the week, um, if you just add it all up, um, was original programming that we created using the uh, classical music archive at the station. And then we did take some syndicated uh, programming, um, Wolf Trap and a couple of other things that came from uh, WFMT in Chicago. Um, and then uh, the Friday at the Opera. Uh, all, you know, Friday was just a, a single uh, single opera, usually played from vinyl uh, because it was the WRHU archive, which had been the WVHC archive. Um, and... Um, that's um, that was the um, that that's what the classical music programming consisted of, and at mm. that time it was five hours a day. It was nine to two, if I'm correct, or maybe right. ten to three. But it was like it was really long. It was internally inside the station. I have to say both administrators and students alike considered um, somewhat of a burden, you know, that was placed upon us by the university that really had this expectation for maintaining classical music during the day. Not only, you know, did they view it as a palatable format for people listening over to the radio, but also it was piped over the speakers around campus. And so we were providing environmental music basically around campus as like sort of a secondary mission of the show, which made programming the show like a little bit tricky Mm -hmm. (laughs) for some, for some different reasons. Things that work on the radio don't necessarily work, uh, on the, you know, kind of like on the quad and vice versa. Um, and, um, but so it was the longest, you know, it was the most programming that we did, uh, all week. Um, and, uh, and it was not something that I necessarily had any expertise for. I was a music person, uh, before I came to WRHU, but did not really have classical music experience in my background. And it probably showed in how I programmed the show. Well, I, I think, you know, like you said, for a lot of people at the station, the classics was 
a necessary evil and it wasn't something that a lot of people put a lot of thought into. Those who were into it did put a lot of effort, whether it was Carl Bucking for a long time or uh, Rich Berger or Dave Braverman. There were people who were who were very much into it. But for the most part, I think most people just sort of said, well, this is a thing that we have to do to make the university happy. Yeah, whether there was... There was a volunteer, sorry to interrupt, but you know, there was a volunteer who really was like the standard bearer or really like, you know, took it seriously and was really, um, also just super helpful to me. And that was John Prestiani, who I think at that time was a volunteer. I'm not sure if John had ever been a student. I don't know actually how John came to the station, but, um, he was there to help onboard me into programming, um, the show and then was just like really helpful, uh, in, um, when I had dumb questions or things like that, he was just someone who himself was a musician, you know, a trained musician. So he knew what he was talking about and then also just like knew the canon. And so it was easy to ask him dumb questions when I had them. Well, it's nice to have that resource. So let's, let's go back and, um, talk about how you got into radio and how you got to Hofstra. Usually I'm asking someone from a student perspective, how they showed up at the radio station or why they came to Hofstra, uh, you know, and found the radio station. But for yourself, uh, how did you get into radio and how did you wind up at Hofstra? Um, I got into radio as a failed indie rock musician, which I think is um, definitely one of the career paths is um, a failed musician turning to radio. Mm -hmm. Um, I played in bands in high school and in college and at a very important crossroads in college when I was a little lost and trying to figure out um, what to do both in school and do in life and what I wanted to do after I was out of college. Um, a friend recommended that I go to uh, the University of Minnesota's student station, which is called Radio K, um, and is the rare student station that is an AM station. Um, it dates back to one of the first radio licenses, I think, in the country that the university held, and it's a 5,000-watt AM station, uh, daytime only, uh, that covers about half of Minnesota. So the the potential audience was really, really big, and we were playing a really pretty, um, uh, pretty professionalized, or we were playing a a playlisted station that had a rotation of sort of CMJ indie rock uh, genre music um, at a station that was run very professionally. It qualified for a CPB grant, so at the time, I think you had to have five full time staffers, which is how we kept that CPB grant. It was a really important part of funding, um, and. I came to the station in 1996, I think, and stayed there for four years and probably actually stayed in college for an additional year just so that I could work at the station. I started there as you know, a volunteer in the music department and then eventually a DJ and then stepped into um, some student um, job positions that had um, fairly serious amounts of responsibility for them. So I was like a morning show host that um, hosted a three-hour a day morning show from six to nine every day. And then I became the operations manager and then I became the program director. Um, and so I just, I got a lot of um, sort of very good professional experience at a um, really pretty well-run student station in Minnesota. The experience was so formative uh, for me and so, uh, so positive, so much more encouraging than anything that I did in college that it was the kind of station that I wanted to work at. I really fell in love with non-commercial radio uh, in my last two years at college and wanted to help further that field um, as much as I could. And it's, it's where I wanted to work. And um, so 
after I graduated, I spent a summer in Boulder, Colorado, working for an internet radio station. Uh, this is the um, the go-go days of the 2000s with a lot of venture right. capital funding streaming internet radio stations. And um, while I was there was when I started talking with Bruce about the job. I had been sort of casting around uh, um, on public radio and non-com job lists and somehow connected uh, with Bruce. I think actually the reason I bring up the Boulder experience is my boss at that internet radio station found the listing and I, I don't know how he did, but he, he recommended it. So then I started talking to Bruce and like a lot of jobs was sort of in conversation with them for, you know, about two months. Um, in a story that, uh, Bruce will also, uh, tell you, I was a contender for two jobs, the one at Hofstra and then one in Minneapolis, which was my hometown. In addition to going to the University of Minnesota, I, I'm, I was born and raised in the Twin Cities. Um, and I, I wanted to stay there. And I got a job at I got a job offer at KFAI, which is still a really great non-commercial community station um, in Minneapolis as their director of development. I would have been a fundraiser, not a job that I think I would pursue now. And I'm glad I didn't pursue it. It's a great position, but it was just not meant for me. Um, and I accepted the job and, uh, I accepted it before I could tell Bruce that I had accepted it. And so I had to call him and tell him, I was like, well, no, I accepted this job here in town. I didn't really think I was going to get offered the job at Hofstra. Um, Bruce had, uh, flown me out for a day of interviews and, you know, like a really nice lunch with staffers and stuff like that. And I was like, this is great. And the station was wonderful. It was freshly remodeled. You know, it had just um, been upgraded with all kinds of uh, um, new studio equipment in the last like six months or years. So the station was really impressive. The staff was really impressive. It was more professional than, than anything I think I'd even encountered. It was a little more sort of corporate in some ways, which was like different than my slightly shaggy um, college station. Right. I didn't think I would get the job. And so I told Bruce that I had been offered the job and he was like, oh, I wish you would have told me. Okay. And you could tell the gears were turning and within a day, and maybe it was the same day he had, um, uh, he got all the, most of the student leaders and probably other students into his office on the speakerphone, And they all called me on my phone and offered me the job. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, and, you know, like Bruce is a guy that doesn't do anything in half measures. And he's mm -hmm. also, you know, extremely earnest and really emotional and um, uh, has a really big heart. And he just had really decided that I was going to be uh, a good fit for what the station needed for that position at the moment. And um, so I, I told him that I, I had to think about it, which he said was also very smart advice and the advice I should have used with uh, KFAI with <laughs> the other job, like take a day to sleep on it. Um, but I eventually did. Uh, I took the job. I uh, had a really unpleasant conversation where I told uh, somebody that I accepted a job that I was declining the job. And then within, according to some notes that I just looked at before this uh, interview, I think I was, I, I moved out to Long Island within two weeks. I left, um, wow. I, left, I left Minneapolis where I had just returned from, from Boulder, where I'd been at that, you know, internship all summer. I was home for really just a couple of weeks and then moved to New York, uh, in a, in short order in part because Bruce had, uh, Bruce and, and I think Michelle and some other folks at the station had really made it possible. They found 
they found me a place to live, uh, which was like pretty clutch. And it was close to the university. I didn't have, I famously did not have a driver's license the entire time that I worked (laughs) at a radio station on Long Island. So I moved to Long Island from the Twin Cities and didn't have a driver's license. Um, So it was important that I live close to the university. Um, They just kind of made things like that happen. And it was um, for someone that uh, this is, this was their first job out of school. Uh, It was one of the most exciting times of my life. I never thought that I would get full-time employment in radio, much less be able to work at the kind of station that WRHU was. And then also the opportunity to move to the East Coast and be that close um, to New York City uh, was something I I never imagined would happen. So, um, you know, if Bruce is listening to this, thank you. Uh, It was uh, a journey that was was really important and he helped make it happen. So that's, that's how I got hired. Wow. If only all radio opportunities worked out in such a favorable way. (laughs) I've got too many jobs to choose from. I'm sorry. (laughs) I feel like since then I've taken some jobs where people didn't seem so excited that I was hired, but everyone was like really, really excited to have. I was, uh, I mean, I think I was 20, I was 23 years old. I was almost 24 uh, when I arrived. I think that's true. I think I was 23. Um, so I was not much older than some of the seniors that were um, working at the station. I think students were sort of interested in somebody that was like coming with a music background that kind of complemented Bruce's news background and Ed's news and sports background. Um, and it, and then the fact that Michelle Lisi would be just down the hall uh, uh, as a faculty member. Um, so she, you know, some institutional memory from both a, a staffer and someone that had been a student way back. Um, it just seemed like a really good fit. And I think that's probably why um, Bruce was really, really into this uh, 23-year-old college radio person coming to to help run the station. One of the topics or one of the things that I ask most people who are students is, you know, what was it like when you first got to the station? And I'm wondering if you could expand on that. You, you, you fly from Minnesota or from wherever to Long Island and you come to this radio station um, if you could describe what it was like, maybe something about the interview process or, or some of the people who were involved in that other than uh, maybe Bruce and Ed, or maybe you've got something that uh, you want to share about them. I think from the process, um, yeah. my first impressions, you know, I had never been to Long Island before. Um, I remember I flew out and stayed with um, uh, uh, my sister-in-law's sister, essentially a, you know, a relative uh, who lived in Manhattan on the Lower East Side um, and was talking to her about Long Island. And I just remember using terms and words to describe Long Island that were just like geographically inaccurate. Like I just didn't know that much about <laughs> Long Island. And I'm sure that she was kind of nodding, going like, okay, all right. Um, but yeah, my, my first impressions, I, I stayed at the Marriott near the Coliseum and um, got picked up by... Boy, I can't remember who who picked me up from the hotel, but it was oh, it was Damien Hay. It was uh, you know Damien Hay, a, a, a you know professor, very young professor uh, in the uh, comm department um, at at Hofstra, who had been kind of designated to be my buddy, even at, you know especially after I was I was hired. In the same way that lots of companies assign experienced people to new people to help them learn the ropes, Damien kind of was that person. Um, you know, my impression of the station, like I said before. I was really impressed by the studios. Like the boards were brand new. They had these um, really great, uh, are they they Pacific boards? I think they're Pacific boards. 
I'm trying to remember the name of the company. Um, they're just really great. I mean, the, the studios looked really good. Um, it also really felt like a college, however. Like I went to a really big, big 10 university that was like, you know, in the middle, dropped into the middle of a very urban environment. Hofstra is a, a little bit of a different story where, you know, sure it has, it's next to uh, Hempstead Turnpike and everything, but it, it, it feels more like a small uh, university or small college. Um, it was really hot. It was, I think, August when mm-hmm. I interviewed and I don't know if I had ever worn a suit non unironically before. Like I, <laughs> I, like, I think I bought a suit for the, for the occasion. Um, and it was, um, there was some HVAC problems in Dempster hall, believe it or not, uh, going on at this time. And so I sat through like, you know, this was my, the first of many, public radio related interviews that I would do where like the interviews lasted all day. And then some like you did, <laughs> I think I talked to like eight or nine different people throughout the day where just everybody, I had to sit down with sort of everybody. So it was already kind of a whirlwind and stressful. And then like a couple of the rooms were like, you know, 85 degrees, but with like 90% humidity, like it was just like wet in these rooms. And I was dying in the suit and Bruce could tell, and we took a break at some point. And, uh, we both happened to be in the men's room washing our hands and he goes like, Hey, it's okay if you want to take off the suit coat. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, uh, I just, that has always stuck with me where he just like kind of did me a solid and told me it was like, okay to take off my suit coat. Um, so, um, but you know, so that's where I met, you know, you know, Bruce and Ed and Michelle and Joe DeRosa, um, for the first time. And then the students that were on the executive board at that time, I think LJ Zabelski was the, um, was the station manager. And then Danielle was, uh, Danielle DeLillo was involved. Um, I'm I'm trying to remember she was probably the marketing director and they were the two, they were two students. And I'm trying to remember if there was another student that was part of that or not. Of course, uh, Basha Sidlowski was part of it. That was mostly the group that I talked to. The other people that I talked to in the uh, interview process were like the, you know, the dean of the school at the time, George Back mm-hmm. and um, uh, Herman Berliner, uh, the, I guess he was the vice provost or provost at the time. Um, it was just for somebody that had not had that much <laughs> workplace experience, much less interviewing experience. It was like, it was really pretty intense, but I got very excited because it just felt really different. And um, just personally, I love Minneapolis. I love Minnesota, but I grew up there and I had really been aching for a long time, mid- even kind of midway through college to to move somewhere else and to experience a different part of the country. And it seemed like I was maybe going to get the chance to do it. Um, mostly what I remember from that interview and sort of from my first impressions of the station was like, I had never met anybody like Bruce Avery before to say that Bruce is intense to anybody who's listening to this, who who is interacting with Bruce Avery to say that he is intense is like an understatement. And then he was like really trying to sell me on coming to the station and being part of it. He had really, I think in, in, you know, uh, conjunction with talking with everybody else. But I think he really felt like I was just going to be a, um, a really good fit and, um, sort of, you know, would just sort of add something to a station that was already had a lot of momentum. Um, so then he kind of turned on the intensity. So it was like Bruce 
multiplied by like intensity of a job interview. And mm-hmm. there were just like, you know, stuff that he, stuff that he talked about in the, um, uh, in the interview where I was like, who is this guy? Like this guy is really taking college radio mm-hmm. seriously. And like, that's what I would learn not only over the next four years, but you know, my long friendship with Bruce, it's, uh, it's, this is, you know, that's like his life's work. This is what he wanted to, um, this is where he was going to leave his mark and he was going to, you know, play some role big or small in a lot of people's, you know, careers, but also just in their professional development and personal development in college, which is like a critical time for both of those things. I think he really knew what this kind of organization, what kind of role it would play in people's lives. And I feel like he would kind of say that in the interview, (laughs) which like that, that was like a little bit, um, it would kind of blow you back a, um, a little bit. And then, you know, Ed Ingalls just being like a big character and just feeling like sort of like, are you playing a role? Like, or is like, you know, it's like James Coburn playing the role of Ed Ingalls here or something like that. Like he just seemed like kind of a character sort of either out of the dirty dozen or like an old ABC sports reel or, or something like that. Um, he just, I, I immediately really liked him. And then, you know, um, Michelle, like I said, was it was just really comforting to me that there was going to be somebody who had been in the position before, um, who only had my interest in heart in terms of at, uh, at heart in terms of helping me, you know, learn the ropes and be sort of green in a uh, uh, in a position that uh, maybe could have been filled by somebody with like more experience. Um, so that was my impression, and um, you know, very quickly, whether it was in that interview or in the the first weeks. There really was just, um, there's something different about WRHU compared to where I had come from, which my station was um, very, very primarily a music station. Um, there was a news department, but it was an, kind of an afterthought, and it, was, it had no real connection to the U of M's journalism uh, school. Obviously, WRHU, um, which, you know, kind of coinciding, I think, with, you know, with Bruce's arrival, really becomes part of the school of communication and, you know, over the years and decades to come would figure out ways to thread that needle, which is a little bit difficult. You don't want to be just a tool of the school of communication, but you also don't want to be so far out that you, you can enjoy some of the opportunities or some of the resources that come with like being kind of embedded inside an educational institution. Um, so, um, that was unusual for me because that was not, uh, the, environment that I had come from before. Um, you know, I had done, I had taken journalism classes, but in order to get out of school with any expediency, I decided to design my own degree, which meant I could just kind of go like, all right, everything I've done, that's part of my degree. Okay. <laughs> so I don't have like a, I don't have a, uh, uh, a full journalism major and I don't have like a full creative writing major, um, or a technical writing major. I sort of took coursework from all three of those things and blended them. So I wasn't necessarily, you know, a journalism school kid per se. I had not worked in the radio newsroom. I had not worked at the, um, the student newspaper at the U. Um, and, um, but was very much in an environment where news and sports were, something that everybody would have to come in contact with for the most part, whether it was just reading news as part of a music shift at the station or whether you were a student in the school of communication and, um, broadcast journalism and, um, you know, sports casting, 
you know, those were two things that many of the many people that worked at the station were interested in doing. And that was like different from what I was interested in, <laughs> mm-hmm. in doing. So that took like a little bit, uh, of a, of an adjustment, but in a sort of telling, uh, move by 2003, about halfway through my time at Hofstra, I enrolled in a, the part-time journalism program at Columbia. So I like decided that I wanted to get a master's degree in journalism, uh, either to teach with or um, just to get deeper into uh, the sort of the field that I had been, you know, dabbling with over the or working in in the last uh, two years hmm. uh, at Hofstra. If, if you don't mind going back for a second, this is something that's been rattling around in my head. Um, when you first got involved with radio in Minnesota, what was it about it that, that really appealed to you and kind of pulled you in? What was it that made you kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say fall in love with radio, but, but obviously you got very involved. What was the draw? Um, the, the initial draw was that I was just a really big music fan. I, like I said, I had, you know, played in some very unsuccessful sort of horrible rock bands in high school and college, but just through that, you know, had, uh, or had long been a music fan since I was, um, a little kid. And so getting the opportunity to work at a, a radio station that was programming the kind of music that I listened to. And that was, you know, had, um, some live performance shows and things like that on it that, um, you know, were the artists that I like or what were the, uh, the kind of music that I liked that just seemed really great to be honest. What probably, um, really kept me there was it was where I found a community of people. It's where I found many of my friends, uh, you know, many people that I, I am still in, in touch today with, uh, it's where I met my wife. Um, we didn't start dating until we graduated, um, from, uh, college and, in a, in the most like strict HR violate, you know, no HR <laughs> violation kind of way. We only started dating after college, but, um, we became really good friends there. So that's a, a pretty pivotal um, moment in my life. And just to be, you know, like I had said earlier, university of Minnesota, twin cities is a huge campus and it's really pretty easy to get lost in it. Um, I also didn't live in the dorms because I did a gap year between high school and college, partic- specifically to play in a band that broke up pretty early in that gap year. Um, and so I didn't really have much connection with people uh, on campus until I went to the radio station and really connected with people. Within about my first sort of six months or year there, um, I was starting to get sort of um, given more responsibility and then got offered a job and, and things like that. So um, for somebody that was like floundering a little bit, not sure what he should do uh, in college or if he should even go to college, um, it eventually became this like really important part of my uh, my social life. And then my my friends and like literally family um, uh, for for decades to come. That, that sounds right. That checks out with a lot of our other experiences, mm-hmm. a lot of other people's stories about, about whether it's Hofstra radio or, or radio in general. Um, I feel like I, I want to ask you a dozen questions about music. I feel it's a separate interview. I, I have a feeling we'd have a lot to talk about. Um, when you got to Hofstra, you mentioned the classics from Hofstra. What were some of the other student-run music programs? And was there anyone that appealed to you more than others? 
Um, I mean, the other programs that were um, on the air, you know, the Jazz Cafe came on after the classics from Hofstra. So like another fairly palatable daytime programming that was sort of safe for um, mass consumption. Then uh, I think the Rock and Roll Oasis came on after Newsline. So like five o'clock ish, I believe. And then it was um, airwave. And then there was like more like block programming in the evening. But those were sort of like the block, uh, the block format shows, like the, the five day a week shows were Rock and Roll Oasis, Airwave, Jazz Cafe, the classics. Um, there was the, um, oh gosh, I'm totally blanking on the name, the top 40 show that was on it. <laughs> It, was the it un- crack, uncharted or something uncharted like that? territory that was okay. on a crack of dawn at like 5 a.m or something um and um and then uh yeah and then there were you know um the aggressive edge that also i think that was on later in the metal show in the evening so the station had um a program schedule that tried to find some consistency in college radio programming which is not always what it looks like like program schedules for college stations at the time often looked like you know, plots of farmland were just like every, there was just like a little block that somebody was nurturing and they didn't communicate with, uh, the other patch of land. But, um, because they strip shows across the week, five days a week, um, I think it was a little bit more, um, coherent and, you know, they had a student overseeing each of those shows, keeping those positions filled as I remember sometimes was like, sometimes was like a little bit, uh, a little bit tricky. Um, I really liked, you know, airwave was the show that I really liked just because that was the, that was the genre of music that I was into. It was just sort of like alternative rock, uh, indie rock. Um, and so, um, I'm trying to remember who, I mean, I think Emily, uh, Emily produced that show for a long time while I was there. And then Cassidy Pignatello and, I can't remember who else, but anyways, yeah. Airwave was just like a show that I, that I liked. I think we did, we launched a show later called out of phase. That was like only, I think it was on for five ish years or something like that. It was like meant to be like an even edgier version of airwave. And I hmm. think I had something to do with that, but not the greatest name for a show. It being an, a, 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 you know, suboptimal state for audio. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, usually one of the things I ask for, for, former students who are on the air is, you know, what, what do you remember about your first time getting on the air or your first experiences, your notes and, and your situation's a little bit different. Do you remember the, the first time or, or, or a big event that sort of gave you a sense of, uh, urgency or, uh, nerves or what, what was your first big test at the station that said, you know, you got to handle this? Um, I'm not sure if I remember a specific on air moment early on. I'm sure that I was really, really nervous for whatever my first shift was. I imagine that probably uh, had something to do with the classics from Hofstra. Um, and I think I also did, um, a morning on Hofstra's morning wake up call. You know, there was always sort of, um, uh, one, either one of the, one of the older volunteers or an administrator, like sort of like on the, on the show, uh, each of the days of the week. So I think, you know, I had Friday or something like that. And, you know, that was always, for me, that was like, uh, just a good example of sometimes how tricky my role was at the station where, again, I really was not much older than some of the people that were at school. In some cases I was younger than some of the people that were, um, students at the station because they had maybe like taken a break or something like that before they had 
um, come back to Hofstra or something like that. So I was, you know, supposed to be sort of a person in a role of responsibility, but then also like on sort of a live chatty morning show <laughs> where like <laughs> things happened on the air. Uh, and so like sometimes that was a little challenging that that might have been one of those stage uh, one of those moments. But I think probably the first moment that I, I on air thing that I remember that I remember really well that I think maybe I wasn't necessarily on the air for was election night 2000, just because it was a really memorable night. Um, I mean, I think 2000, I think marked a pretty big shift in politics on Long Island. I think a lot of Democrats won in, uh, in a region where Republicans had been dominant for a really long time. I don't remember if it was like, I don't remember the, the, the particular um, races I'm trying to remember when, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Tom, De Na- is it Tom DiNapoli? Was he the, um, the executive of Nassau County? Uh, that's possible. I remember he, he went on to become, um, uh, sort of the chief financial officer for yeah. New York state, but that sounds yeah. right. That sounds right. I feel like, I feel like there was a, it was maybe 2000. This is, I could be completely wrong about this, but basically, um, there was some big shifts and some key seats, um, on Long Island that year, I believe, but then also um, the the presidential race and the uh, the Florida stuff and Bush v. Gore and stuff like that. I just remember we were we were on the air. We didn't we didn't call the race for either either candidate because we were doing updates about the the presidential race, um, but we didn't call it uh, for either side, unlike some other networks. And then we just like we went to we had to we had to turn you know like turn off the coverage and go but go to bed at one or two in the morning. Right. And, um, and then we were just in that situation for, you know, for many days where it was not really clear what the outcome of the, uh, of the election was. But so I just remember that because I think the students at the station, um, did a really nice job. Um, uh, it was Linda Longmire was the co-host and then Mike, oh gosh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to miss Mike's, um, last name, but they were the co-hosts that year and they did a, really, really nice job. I think we won an award for it. We won a folio award for it that year. Um, and it was just a moment where I was like, oh, this, this news thing that this station does, even though it's a, it's a small station, um, next to a very, very big market, I felt like the students did a really nice job and, um, it was a really, really good experience for everybody, including me. Like that's the dirty little secret of my time at Hofstra is that I was getting, paid full-time to be an operations manager, but I learned so much during that, uh, during that time that I would use, uh, in other jobs. For many, many years, election night coverage has been uh, a big focus for Hofstra mm-hmm. radio mm-hmm. over time and, and students are involved. They're out in the field. Um, do you remember your impressions of getting ready for election night in advance? Cause you said you didn't have a big journalism background. So mm-hmm. this must've seemed like quite an operation just walking in. Yeah. I mean that 2000 would have been the year that I learned the things that I would use every single fall after that. Cause we did, I mean, I think we did election night every year. I think no matter what, what the races were like, I'm not sure if that, if, if it was an off year, if we would not but just, it always seems like in, in the New York area, like there's something to talk about every year. Right. Um, so what I remember is a lot of, um, uh, 
a lot of uh, preparation involving getting ISDN lines dropped at venues, which was like kind of a nuts thing where you'd just be, you'd be like calling up a restaurant and be like, we have to send Verizon over to drop <laughs> ISDN lines somewhere in your kitchen. Uh, is that okay? And, um, but if not, you know, trying to get a, trying to get a phone line from the restaurant or getting a phone line dropped so that it was dedicated and knowing where that phone line was so that someone couldn't steal it from us. Um, that, that kind of stuff, I think I learned that year. And then after that year, I, I kind of had memorized, not memorized it, but it was easier to do, but that kind of just, um, uh, uh, kind of pre-production or like, you know, almost kind of engineering work or community, you know, telco work or like whatever, that was not something I had done before. And it was like, oh, we really are going to put like eight different remote sites on the air, uh, for this thing, which I had not been involved with that before. But again, it was stuff that I, I, you know, I don't use it every day, but there were, there were chunks of my career in which I use that, that information really, really frequently. Hmm. Um, speaking of other big events, we, we sort of communicated before this interview about things, but a number of major events happened during your time at WR2, and perhaps none bigger than the attacks on September 11th. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you remember about how things uh, broke down that day? Um, by that point, by the end of 2001, I had been working at the station for just over a year, and uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, had moved uh, out from uh, the Twin Cities out to um, New York, and we were living in Brooklyn. Um, again, this is my wife Linda that I I met at my own college radio station, and um, so she she moved out to New York after about nine months. We moved to Brooklyn, so I took the LAWR out to Hofstra every day, and I was on the train heading to Hofstra when my dad called me because he had seen the first plane hit um, the World Trade Center. So I found out about it from him on the train. Um, and I carried a radio with me because I wanted to be able to listen to the station wherever I was, was long before you could just sort of stream a station on your phone all the right. time. Um, and so I had a small Walkman and listened to uh, the CBS 880 um, coverage of it while on the Blue Beetle from the Hempstead LIRR station out to Hofstra. I think that's where I learned about the um, the, the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. Um or maybe the Pentagon. I might be getting the timing mixed up, but I heard about one of the other planes on that. And so by the time um, I actually got to the station, it was like still fairly early in the morning at that point. It's like still about nine ish, you know, or nine fifteen or something. Um, and so um, we just we went into wall to wall coverage mode and did what we could based on what was coming um, over the AP wires. Um, you know, we, uh, got televisions, um, set up in different locations so that people could record, um, uh, the feed from, uh, from, a uh, uh, from one of the news networks so that we could, you know, uh, make cuts and stuff like that. But, you know, no one knew a lot other than that. Um, the world was just seemed to be kind of going crazy and turned upside down. Like it was just an, an insane moment. And, um, you know, other than, um, doing a, a long shift on the board at one point that day. I, I think I took over for our student engineer, Justin, at some point, and then was just on the, the board for a long time. The The only other thing that I, I remember really crisply about that day was um, we were kind of in search for TVs. We wanted to have TVs 
um, to set up because obviously people wanted to, to watch the coverage that was going on. And, you know, I, if I, if I remember, this is a weird memory, but I, you know, there just were like coax drops all over dumpster hall and you could like mm. plug in a TV and get TV. Um, and so I remember going to the, um, the, the school of comm engineers office, um, Joe Valerio and, uh, John cop. And I remember going into their office to, um, to ask them for a TV and both of them and maybe another person were in that office. And that's when the, uh, the towers fell. I remember going in there and asking for a TV and they were glued to the TV and, uh, the towers were, uh, were coming down. So uh, it's a, a, a moment I, I won't ever forget. And I remember sitting there watching it happen. And I was like, this seems like a really strange thing to, to say. And it sounds almost insensitive, but I also, you know, like I felt, I felt a real sense of duty to keep things going at the station. That was like, you know, it's built into the title of the job. And I just remember thinking like, this is the most horrifying thing that I'm watching. I also thought to myself, how long do I need to wait before I ask them for the cable that I came in here to ask them for? Like I needed a coax or, you know, a, you know, RCA cable or, you know, something like that. And I just was like, I need to ask them a favor right now. That's really important to us continuing to do stuff on the air there's like this kind of horrible thing that happened. And so I, I waited however long it was. It, it probably wasn't that long. And I said it with probably the driest mouth you can possibly ask for. But then, you know, they gave me what I need and what I needed. And I was on my way. So I, um, that's, that's mostly what I remember about kind of the, uh, the attacks and the aftermath itself. The, the other story was that it wasn't clear how I was going to get home. I lived in Brooklyn um, and, you know, not many people at the station lived like that far away, um, except for Joe DeRosa, uh, our chief engineer, uh, who, I mean, not only lived in Brooklyn, but is like born and bred and the most Brooklyn person I've ever met, I think mm-hmm. in my life. Um, and I thought I was maybe going to have to stay out at the station or something like that because the train, no, you know, none of the trains were heading into the city. The, they had made sure that trains, LAWR trains were continuing to run away from Manhattan, but you couldn't get in, you couldn't get back on a train or a subway. Um, so Joe and I looked at each other and we were like, well, should we try and do it? Should we try and drive back to Brooklyn? We just didn't know what the, what the you know, parkways were going to be like, what BQE was going to be like, like we had no idea. Um, and we also knew the president was going to speak at whatever time that was. I think it was maybe seven or something like that or eight. And, um, so the other memory I have of, September 11, 2001 is dry is Joe driving in his little red Honda hatchback, which anybody that worked at the station at the time will remember Joe's car. Cause it was like part of any number of remote events and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that he drove like maybe 85 or 90 miles an hour, like, uh, on, on the, I guess it would be the BQE, the BQE that we were on. He drove extremely fast, faster than I've ever driven on any <laughs> New York area interstate because there was nobody on the roads. Like, there were some cops that you would see or, you know, maybe, maybe fire vehicles or emergency vehicles that, that were still heading to the site, but there was no one on the road. It was the eeriest thing that I've ever felt. And we were able to like break the speed limit, uh, all the way until we just got to a point where we knew the president was going to come on. So we pulled over and stopped at some random Irish bar, uh, in Brooklyn and watched, um, George W. Bush's address. Uh, I drank a, a Guinness because I really needed a beer after that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then we headed home and he dropped me off and he went back to, 
his place. He kind of lived in Bensonhurst, I think. And um, so that's 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 mostly it. And there's you know stuff that happened at home that were that was you know we had left our windows open that morning mm-hmm. uh, before I left, and we lived um, in Park Slope, but pretty pretty far west. And so there was like ash and soot all over our apartment um, when, when, because we had left the windows open. It was just a, it was a completely surreal day. And it's interesting to me that I guess I don't remember more about what we were doing on the air. I, I think I was behind the board for a long time. Um, and in one of the most egregious acts of poor archiving, somehow we lost track of the DAT tape that we recorded uh, uh, f- uh, just at the air check of the, of the WRHU board that day, we just ran at least two dat tapes that entire day. Cause they could record whatever two hours at least. Um, and when we went back to look for them a year or two later, they had kind of been in the same spot and then we couldn't find them. Hmm. So I don't know if anybody has recordings of that day, actually. Dave Plotkin said that he might have a copy uh, okay. somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it, I think if anybody would have it, it yeah. would probably <laughs> be Dave. That's exactly um, what I was going to say. But, but I talked to Dave, I talked to, to Bruce and some other folks who were, who were there on September 11th. And one of the things we tried to get to, and this might not be a real question or, or answerable, but it's sort of, you know, you mentioned this, that you're the operations manager. I need this cable to keep us on the air to keep us doing what we're doing. And there's something about a lot of the people who wind up at Hofstra Radio or in this business that when an event like this happens, they run to the station or they run to a microphone or they mm-hmm. take pictures. It's it's something intrinsic, I think, or or maybe it's something learned. I don't I don't know. But like what is it that drives these people, these these undergraduates to show up at the radio station and be like, I'm I'm here for the next however long it takes. I mean, I think a lot of, um, sort of, you know, student stations or, um, education based stations, um, do operate with, um, the, the sort of like the, the, the baton race that is live radio in mind. You know, there are some, um, college stations that really, um, take that seriously, but like a lot of them sort of like, you know, uh, kind of turn out the lights at night or, um, they're not based enough around news or sports for that matter, that live is not something that means live, like with a capital L. And I think, um, you know, um, this is my perspective because I, you know, I sort of, I joined during the Bruce Avery era, but like the training class that he taught was part of the indoctrination of, um, instilling in people how important live radio is and that you can't drop the baton and there are things that you need to do, um, in order to like recover if, uh, if, if, uh, something unexpected happens. Um, so I I think that's kind of part of it that I, I think a lot of people got sort of indoctrinated in it through that, through that class. But then I also think that like the, um, you know, the kind of training and mentorship that, um, students at, um, at WRHU and at the, you know, the stations that preceded it, that's a big part of it too, where it's just like, if the stakes are high and everyone's really serious about what they do, like it's harder for you to be less serious about it or to, Hmm. to turn off the lights or walk away. I mean, you know, like a, a, a far less tragic, um, example of how, uh, Hofstra radio students have, you know, kind of run to the station when there's an emergency and they just, they just want to help, which by the way is like a, 
uh, a behavior that I observed in most of the other really great radio jobs that I had were just like something happens and people want to want to be there for it. And they don't care if they don't really get used. They just want to be there to help if they can. But one of the the best examples is the um, the blackout that happened. I think it's August 14th, 2003. It's my grandmother's birthday. Um, And there's a big Northeast blackout that probably lots of people listening remember. And I mean, the station was like off the air. Like there there was no, there was no station to come rescue or to come help at. Like we were off the air for, I mean, pretty solid day, you know, as I, as I recall, I mean, there was no light, there were no lights in the building, um, much less uh, a webcast or a broadcast, Mm -hmm. but still people came down anyways, just because like they, they also didn't know what to do. Um, and sometimes there's food at the station, which is another key, p- a key reason that some people come <laughs> right. to the radio station. Um, but anyways, I just, that, that told me a lot that, you know, students really wanted to be there for that. And, and the news department was still cranking. Like, I think Ed was, um, you know, coaching kids who were like doing phoners and recording phoners on Marantz's like that, you know, that obviously were working on batteries and had little hybrids in them and stuff like that. Um, I mean, we did gather tape, we couldn't air it, but we did gather tape. And I think in some cases we may have fed that audio to other stations to like LIR or maybe a new station in the area. I can't remember, but it's like, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's a real tribute to, I think Bruce and Ed in particular, who just like, that's the, those are the backgrounds that they came from. And they knew that that sort of killer live instinct that you develop sometimes uh, when you are being trained in radio is going to be, is going to be really important. And that's sometimes what separates really good people from sort of like, okay, people uh, in those situations. Yeah. I think it's hard for a lot of people to imagine the, the scope of the blackout and how, you know, it just, it just knocks so many radio stations and TV stations off the air and, and um, to get a sense of, of how, wide ranging it was. And there, there just wasn't anything that you could do. Um, but that, that brought to mind, I think you said in there something about webcasting. It would have been about that time, I think, that Hofstra Radio would have started going online. Is mm-hmm. that right? About that time? Yeah. I wish I, I wish I could remember exactly when it happened. We had sort of dabbled with it on um, just like one-off events. Like uh, Election Night 2000 was, I think, technically the station's first webcast because it didn't really use, you know, copyrighted music um, because it was something that we definitely knew parents of the students involved really wanted to hear uh, over the internet. We did set up a fairly simple, um, I think it was real uh, just to, just to go back way back to streaming audio formats. It was like a real player, real encoder type situation. And we streamed election night 2000. Then after that, then I probably spent the next, year, I think, um, researching and learning more about what it would take for a very, uh, how shall I say, kind of, you know, conservative minded legal counsel office at Hofstra to give the okay for, um, streaming audio, um, over the internet. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 2000 was something that I learned a lot about that I mm-hmm. hadn't known a lot about before. But that was, you know, that was the piece of legislation that was going to govern how music royalties were um, uh, were doled out. And it still wasn't really um, hammered out until maybe like, yeah, 2002 or 2003. And then like a license was created 
um, some of the interest groups for non-commercial radio helped um, lobby on their behalf and get a, um, a favorable rate, you know, so that it wouldn't just like break the bank or bankrupt um, smaller non-commercial entities. Once that stuff all got hammered out, which really took a long time, and as a result, like because I was the person that was working on uh, webcasts and students were getting so used to streaming things over um, over the internet, there was like a lot of pressure where it was like, we really need to be, um, we really need to be on the internet. And obviously, I mean, a college station too for um, at a private university where parents are paying a lot of money to send their kids through a school of communication, like a webcast is a very good idea just for like mm-hmm. <laughs> parent relations. Um, but we, we really had to wait until um, the structure had been set up. And um, so, and then, then mostly from there was just the technical challenges of getting an encoder set up and getting a vendor that we felt was the right um, streaming media company and, um, stuff like that. And I wish I had a better uh, memory of like what our first webcast was or like what the first week was like. I have a feeling it probably was kind of anticlimactic where it was just like, sort of like, you know, we'd been hoping for a web, you know, working on getting a webcast for like a couple of years and then suddenly it was there and you're like, well, that just sounds like the radio station on my right. computer. Um, but it was a, um, it was a really big deal and it was a really big priority for Bruce for, I think a lot of the reasons that I, um, I mentioned and more just because it also felt like the future and being able to have um, have that uh, that webcast as part of what we did was important. You know, we eventually um, evolved so that there were a couple of different um, web channels available to us, including uh, the Hawk, the Hofstra. Oh gosh, what is it? Uh, Hofstra audio web channel or like something like that. It was essentially like the ESPN two mm-hmm. of, um, WRHU that allowed us to put a lot of sports content, um, on, on the web only. So if there was like a slightly lower stakes live sports cast that, um, we didn't want to preempt other programming for, we could send it to that, which that had really been a tricky issue at the station definitely during my time there, but I'm sure, you know, in years before that, which was just balancing the strong desire uh, to cover Hofstra sports and to give practical opportunities to um, students that were um, learning those news and sports skills with um, the music programming that listeners had grown accustomed to and that, you know, those programmers, those students and volunteers had worked really hard on to like develop those shows and stuff like that. So, um, that was, that was actually probably one of the just most sort of chronic tricky issues at the station was balancing, um, the sort of like news and sports programming with the music programming and trying to, um, find a happy medium between mm. the two. And the, so the webcast was kind of part of that. I, I think, you know, you mentioned sort of the novelty of, well, we're, we're on the internet now and it sounds like the radio, but there must've been a sense or, uh, uh, the possibilities of doing different things and expanding what the station could do once that was established. Do you remember that being a feeling of, of like, wow, this is cool. We have all these new toys or was it just something that uh, took a long time to, to work out? Um, I think that it was maybe a little bit more like the metaphor about um, boiling the frog, you know, like <laughs> it was like there were enough little, um, little tiny, um, bits of progress that happened over a couple of years, you know, because the news and sports content really didn't use copyrighted music. Like, I mean, we were, 
you know, there was a year where Bruce went to NAB and came back with the license to um, a production music library just because we knew that we would be able to webcast that and it would be, it would be, you know, legal or compliant. Um, and so, you know, those, those bumpers were used in um, news and, and especially sports um, uh, content. And so I think that like before we were streaming, you know, the, the music program, either the daytime or the evening music programming, we were, I believe, webcasting sports, um, um, either simulcasting what was um, airing over the air or just doing web exclusive stuff. And I remember like, yeah, in HTML on the, on the WRHU site, you know, like there's just like, there's just like a table that we created. And that was kind of the, the, the sports event schedule where like you would click here or click here. It was just like very crude, uh, by today's standards in terms of like listeners being able to figure out where to hear the thing that they want to hear. Um, so I, I unfortunately kind of don't remember like the big milestones about like what was our first, um, uh, sports webcast, what was, you know, when did the, um, the music stations go on the air? Um, you know, I, I have to say there's something in the back of my head says that like we planned it on a certain day and then that day got kind of pushed back by a week. Cause there were like technical hiccups or something like that. It was like one of those sort of, um, you know, uh, uh anticlimactic, uh, kind of launches. Right. Um, but, but I think, I think what you're getting at is, is, you know, the, the expansion of possibilities that, that this is, this is going to be a useful resource. You may not know exactly how, as you're, as you're figuring it out and, and working through uh, all the bugs and problems, but it's like, this is an opportunity that didn't exist even a handful of years ago. And now it's, it's going to become something else. I think you're, you're getting to that definitely. Well, and I think the, the limitations of the station's, um, you know, broadcast radius, was or broadcast area or broadcast footprint was the other thing too, where it was like, that's something we're not going to be able to change. It's really going to only cover this amount of, uh, this amount of geography. But I, I think that was the thing that people are really excited about. I mean, this is before people knew that you would be able to listen to WRHU really easily on your phone or in your mm-hmm. car, you know, by streaming it. Um, but just being able to listen to it on uh, a desktop or a laptop was was pretty exciting because it just meant that people almost beyond the actual borders of Nassau County <laughs> would yeah. be able to listen to the station. Well, it's hard to remember, you know, smartphones didn't exist yet. Yeah. Facebook mm-hmm. didn't exist yet. Uh, mm-hmm. Most social media did not exist yet. So this was, it was, it was perhaps clunky or crude, as you said, but it was, it was the cutting edge. It was a possibility. And I think that's a, that's a really neat time to be there. Also to think about, you know, from either Bruce's point of view or just the, the larger school's point of view, um, whether it was, um, a 24 seven live webcast or whether it was, um, you know, like coverage of NHL games or other bells and whistles and things like that, you know, other, you know, technology or equipment inside the station, WRHU has just always been very impressive because of, you know, both the opportunities that students get. And then also it's just like, it's a really nice facility where it has people looking out to make sure that it has, um, uh, good stuff in it. And so I feel like the webcast is just kind of one, one chapter of that where like, you know, in terms of marketing the station to prospective Hofstra students who want to come to, or trying to decide between going to Hofstra or going to Emerson or wherever it was, um, 
they, they, you know, like I know that Bruce and I think the school at large was like having those feathers in our cap is a good thing. Hmm. Um, we, we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of memories. You have some of your, your papers, as we discussed earlier, that, uh, can help jog the memory. Um, but when you first got and you decided to take this job and you moved from Minnesota to Long Island at that point, what did you hope Hofstra radio would be for you and what did it become? Um, that's a good question. I think that I hoped it was the first chapter in a long career working for non-commercial music stations. I was a really big fan of, um, stations like, uh, WFMU in New Jersey. Like I just, I still love that station, uh, to this day, you know, other stations like KFAI, the station I'd mentioned, in Minnesota, I felt like I wanted to be, uh, you know, a station manager, a PD, um, you know, a GM at a, at a non-commercial station that felt like my calling at the time. And I was, I felt like I was somehow going to pay my bills doing that. Hmm. Um, it's not quite how things ended up. And I, I sort of pivoted on that pretty quickly. Um, like I said, I, um, enrolled in a, uh, a part-time journalism program at, um, Columbia, which means you just do it in two years as opposed to one, um, in part because, um, I wanted to have a master's degree because it seemed like I might have the opportunity to do some adjunct teaching, uh, at Hofstra, which I was really excited about because I enjoyed, um, teaching in the training class that, um, you know, Bruce oversaw. It was, um, you know, it was kind of a pain in the neck sometimes, but I also, once we got down to the actual class nights and we got to do, uh, you know, we got to teach, um, you know, I sort of got to do a presentation or answer questions or just, you know, be in front of a classroom. I found that I really, really liked that. And I wanted to make sure that I had uh, a degree that seemed like, um, I'd be able to do that, um, in the future. So then I started, <laughs> then my life was really spread out. I was like going to school in Morningside Heights at Columbia. Right. I lived in, uh, like I don't know, one of the 10 neighborhoods I lived in, in New York over the 15 years we lived there. Uh, but I lived in Brooklyn basically. And then was like working on long Island and got stretched like pretty thin, uh, for that, that last year, especially the, the year that I was in school, which was sort of my last year. My, my first year of the two year program was my last year, uh, at WRHU. Um, and I think I started thinking more about, um, uh, obviously about being a journalist and more about being a producer, which is something that, um, I started thinking about more in journalism school. I thought less about maybe being on the air than I had been on before and thought more about, um, what I liked about, um, helping shape programs and also that like I might get paid more if I was like running a, you know, like running a show. Um, and so those are seeds I think that kind of got planted during sort of the mid to late period, uh, that I was at, uh, WRHU just because of experiences that I was having, um, as a, as a journalism student, uh, um, at Columbia. And then also just having then now, you know, at that point, having lived in New York for like two or three years, which I really, really enjoyed. And I really liked, um, living in New York city. And so eventually when I left Hofstra in 2004, it was for kind of a bunch of reasons. One, uh, the, the, the going to school 
uh, in upper Manhattan and in yeah. uh, working full time uh, on Long Island was just not compatible. I was starting to like fall asleep on the train home, coming home from school. And like, I would like wake up in Coney Island. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, this is, that was like kind of the day where I decided it, where I was like, I woke up just at the end of the line on the F I think. And I was like, Oh boy. Um, and, um, so, uh, I also got offered a job, um, that was really compatible with school. It was working at, a trade magazine called Broadcasting and Cable. That was a television trade magazine. It felt really pertinent pertinent to um, what I was doing in school and kind of what I was interested in. I got really interested in television and the television business while I was working there. So I was just really starting to kind of pivot a little bit and get interested in some some things that were a little bit different from this like very idealistic job that I had in mind coming out of college and arriving at Hofstra, which was sort of skippering uh, you know, small non-commercial stations that weren't NPR stations. I started really thinking about public radio at that point, or mm-hmm. I should say NPR, um, which is sort of ultimately where where I uh, I ended up. I you know I finished school um, in 2005. I moved back to Minnesota for a year to um, to work as a producer on the Al Franken show, which was, uh, the future senators, uh, talk show, three hour talk show on air America radio, a mm-hmm. now defunct liberal talk network. That was a bit of a disaster. There's an HBO documentary about <laughs> it that you should watch if you want to see how not to run a talk network. Um, and, uh, so I did that for a year cause I was a big SNL fan and, um, worked for Al. And then he, um, announced his candidacy about at the end of that year. And weirdly, despite being a native of Minneapolis, I didn't, I wasn't networked there very well. So I moved back to New York uh, because I knew more people. And that's when I ended up at WNYC in a producer job on a show called Soundcheck that was a daily music talk show. It was a one hour a day, two to three, um, a live talk show where it was like sort of half conversations and half live performance. It really kind of like brought together all the different things that I had been doing at that point, which was... Um, you know, I, like I said, a really, really big music fan and, um, interested in, uh, in being a producer, definitely working in a journalism environment, but then also just having the, um, kind of kitchen sink skills or being a sort of utility player that I had to be at, uh, at Hofstra. And so the, all the weird things that I did at Hofstra, the sort of disparate things that I did at WRHU, um, are things that like super came in handy in that job. It's like I could bore you with why, but it was just interesting how two environments that were they were really pretty different. Um, I was able to like really use what I learned in one job elsewhere. So, yeah, the the short version is like I spent eight years, uh, almost eight years at WNYC um, producing that show and then running that show and then sort of doing some other uh, content development projects. Uh, from there, I um, I ran Slate's podcast stable for a short time. Um, I moved to Chicago and worked at WBEZ as their um, EP of talk programming and podcasts for another three. Um, I worked for for WNYC for another year just on a specific documentary podcast that took about a year to make. Um, and then uh, I landed here in Salt Lake City in 2018 and I got hired to run a station uh, here, the NPR member station, KUER. Um, I was the program director and then the station manager of that station uh, for about three years. Um, and I left just last year to go into business for myself. And I 
um, myself and, a, and my business partner, we run a, a small podcast production company. So that's the, <laughs> that's the extremely brief version of what happened to me uh, after WRHU. It, it's a fascinating story, and and I'm I'm just connecting all the dots, going back to the way that you talked about that first job in Minnesota and your love of music and all these things that you picked up along the way. It's it's such a it's such an amazing journey, and uh, thank you so much for sharing your stories and and taking the time to to reminisce about your time at at Hofstra Radio. Oh, thanks for the opportunity to do it. It's always um, fun to talk about it, and in my head, I'm imagining various different people listening to what I'm saying and wondering what they're going to think but it was really fun. I really appreciate the opportunity.